Hello, everybody. Good evening. Can you hear me? Okay. I like the waves and the thumbs up. And good. Um, I feel a little bit of a challenge uh, to, on the one hand, connect the talks I'll be giving and that at the same time make them accessible to people who are just joining this one talk. Um, but there was this uh, moment in the talk I gave on Saturday as part of the online Dharma weekend that just didn't really sit well with me. It's kind of a clumsy moment, I felt. Um, I was talking about three ways to practice impermanence. And then somehow I felt I should say why it was important to practice impermanence in the first place. So I kind of scrambled and I said, well, it's um, the, the key issue in Buddhism that we want to address is attachment. Or that's one way to look at it. And um, if we recognize the world as being impermanent, thoroughly impermanent, then there is less, you know, say, surface to attach to. You know, I, I said something like that. And uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't sitting well with me, and I've been feeling out why it wasn't sitting well with me. And so, to give a little give a little preview of the theme of the talk, I think I came to the conclusion that um, just to see the world as impermanent and maybe enter into a practice of momentariness, which is I, I'll say something about that isn't uh, is useful and uh I, from my point of view quite necessary but it's um, maybe not sufficient and i was wondering you know what 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 is what is lacking or what do we need to practice in addition and so the word i'm going to use is insubstantiality. In addition to seeing the world as impermanent, I think we also need to see it as ins insubstantial, thoroughly insubstantial. So just as a little recap, um, I offered the idea that we could practice impermanence in three ways, uh, impermanence of self, by which I mean uh, recognizing our own mortality, our own fragility, and by extension, the um, the per impermanence and mortality of all organisms, living organisms, and actually of all objects, that everything is um, subject to to change, to and uh, to to birth and death, we could say. And then in addition to that, I said we can practice impermanence of phenomena and impermanence of attention. 
Now maybe, you know, to just look at these words a little bit, when I say impermanence of phenomena, I mean that in con contrast to objects. Because I think we tend to see objects as out there and pretty, um, pretty substantial. So there's a thing out there that has shape and form and it endures over time. But when I say phenomena, I mean appearance. Uh, phenomena, you know, one way to define it would be something like the way objects appear within the six senses, within our sixfold sensorium. And they appear as appearances or as a phenomenon. You know, the Greek word phenomenon really means just that, appearance. But not just appearance in some sort of abstract way, but appearance to the human sensorium. Because we have no other way to generate appearance than through our own sensorium. And, and then we can, I said, we can observe the impermanence of phenomena through the teaching of the four marks that things that everything is has birth duration dissolution and disappearance as as the mark of of its coming and going okay and it's it's uh, it's kind of a mechanical practice to um, bring yourself to actually notice the beginning of an appearance as its birth and then notice how it's staying for a while, how it's fading, and then completely disappearing if you take a bell and how it's, how it's rung by a striker and the sound is born, stays for a while, fades and disappears. So uh, it's also to to practice the impermanence of phenomena is like di it's a little bit like uh, putting punctuation marks into your experiencing. Oh, now this now this appearance is born. Now it is staying. Now it's fading. Now it's disappearing, and now this appearance is born. And you can also notice how that is, that appearance is happening in the sixfold sensorium, and it might just happen in this sound channel, and not in a visual channel. You might not see the bell that's being rung and just hear it. So already by doing that, by noticing that phenomena are marked by impermanence and are happening in the sixfold sensorium, the world is already, it, it already loses a little bit of its substantiality. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like you're not seeing things as solidified objects, you're actually seeing them cracked open into sixfold objects that sometimes appear as sound, sometimes appear as visual, sometimes appear as taste. You know, the little portion of food that I'm putting on my spoon is visible until I put it into my mouth, and then it's just taste. And 
it disappears as a visual. But when I think of it, you know, I think of it as pasta, and there it has this object character, but already when it's when it's um, differentiated into these sixfold senses, it it loses some of its seeming substantiality, which really uh, is. Um, largely created by the conception that we put on top of our phenomenal or phenomenal experiencing. Okay, and then I said, when, when you do this kind of practice, you can start noticing that not only are phenomena out there, so to speak, impermanent, but also your own attention is moving and changing. So we need um, an appearance is born through the object and the sensorial attention that's given that's given to the object. Now when I you know you can try this out easily when I close my eyes the visual world disappears. When I cover my ears the oral world disappears. So there's also a sixfold attentionality that needs to meet the object in order for appearance to uh, emerge. And um, this in itself is just quite interesting, I think, if you are into studying your experience on a kind of micro level, is that um, you know, you only have so much attention for something for so long. So attention is born, stays for a while, fades and disappears too. And depending on how that, win let's say, window of attention meets the an, a, a certain object that's present, <coughs> it shapes... Um, It shapes the appearance, so the meeting of the object and the and the sensorial attention, as I'm putting it now, uh, gives birth to the gives birth to the appearance. Okay, so anyway, my idea is, or the idea that I presented is, if you minimize the surface for attachment. There's just less to attach to. You know, if I see myself as an eternal being, you know, I'm, I might seem uh, quite important in the world because I'm eternal and so forth. Um, if I see myself as a mortal being, maybe there's already less to attach to. If I see myself uh, as a succession of phenomenal experiencing where this appears and then that appears and then that appears and even my attention is rather fragile and fleeting there's even less surface to attach to so it's like how do you attach to um, a breeze this like how do you make this breeze something that you want to put into your pocket and own. It's, it's hard to conceive if 
if uh, if everything is just like a breeze, how do you how do you really want to attach to it? Anyway, that was my idea. But in reflecting on it, and also part of the talk last time was, of course I can attach to a breeze. You know, if it's a hot, sweltering day, and there's this little short breeze, I can want it to last longer. I can want it not to go away. Of course I can be attached to the breeze. I can get quite upset, actually, that the breeze is so short. <laughs> so that's why I, I just think it's insufficient to say that we practice uh, impermanence to uh, reduce the surface for attachment. In fact, I think when we start to see the world as momentary units, this momentariness that I'm trying to uh, tune you to or point you to, um, we can actually, I think, observe quite clearly that we have a strong resistance to this particular moment or a strong attachment to this particular moment. I I had I had a moment of impatience today and uh you know it's quite fleeting it's like a breeze it's like this I look into this person's eyes who meets like I see not understanding or not following in these eyes and I have an um I have a desire to be understood you know I'm already thinking that I'm quite clear in what I'm saying, and I just want to be understood quickly, now, you know, not have a long discussion about it. <clears throat> I mean, what's happening in a moment like this? It's like, here is this phenomenal arising of these eyes of not understanding, and then there are sensations in my body that I find unpleasant, and I resist them, you know. So just because I actually am right... I'm right there with what's happening, you know, it's not like saving me from resistance or attachment. And suffering arises from that. Tension, you know, in the relationship. So I, I'm just asking myself, uh, when when I put out the idea of insubstantiality, you know, how do you, how do we practice that? And also, uh, what what exactly is the the difference that uh, the distinction that I want to make between insubstantial and impermanent? So it's like. Like say you're hiking in the mountains and a storm is brewing and you have the anticipation of bad weather, right? We're all familiar with that kind of situation, whether you're in the mountains or not, doesn't matter. Like there's uh, impending bad weather. Then 
then um, if I have a certain bias that I like good weather and I don't like bad weather, and I'm attached to good weather, I'm resistant to bad weather, um, I can have the view that the weather is impermanent. You know, bad weather comes and it also goes. And uh, it's like there's this Persian adage, you know, this too shall pass. You probably heard somebody say that, you know, this too shall pass, which um, I think it's used in many languages. And it just points to how impermanent and ephemeral the world is and that nothing really lasts. So the bad weather will pass. The pandemic will pass. I will also pass. My bad habits will pass, you know, to some degree when I'm dead, unless I've passed them on. I don't know. Maybe that can happen too. Um, so this too shall pass is a view of impermanence. But then it's like, does it really get to the preferential treatment that I have for the sun shining? Because I'm just enduring the time in which there is bad weather and knowing that it will pass. Like I'm just like accepting, oh, it's bad now, it'll be better later. I don't think that gets fully to, that doesn't get fully to the root of, um, of attachment or preferences. So, so the question I'm holding is like, in what way is the bad weather actually insubstantial? And I'm just using the bad weather, of course, as a metaphor, but in what ways each experience, each moment of experience in, in, insubstantial. And uh, I think the first thing is uh, we, we kind of have to get out of our head and into our sensorium as a f to, to discover a first layer of insubstantiality, as I already said in the beginning of the talk. It's like, as long as I'm in my head thinking about how bad the weather is going to be and um, worrying about how I will get wet and be wet later at night in my tent and, you know, how I've had bad experiences with bad weather in the past. Um, you know, as long as I'm in that, I have a real drama going on in my head about bad weather. And I'm, I'm saying that because... <laughs> I have a history of that drama. You know? It's like, uh, I hated it, always. Camping, you know, in bad weather, it's like, it's a childhood trauma for me almost, you know. I'm not going to go into that, but I have a lot of practice with tolerating bad weather <clears throat> because I'm, I've developed a habit, I don't know why, but I've developed a habit of really hating it. <clears throat> some strange fearfulness around, you know, being wet and uncomfortable and so forth. <clears throat> of course, in Germany, you grow up with a saying that there's there's no bad weather, it's just bad, bad clothing. Like, that's what your parents tell you. But anyway, it didn't really penetrate here. I, I, anyway, you understand. <clears throat> So I think uh, the first 
the first uh, step really is to get out of the out of my head, out of my thinking about the bad weather, out of my worry, out of my memories, out of the story I entertain around bad weather and myself, and into my sensorium. And what do I find? I mean, I find sensations of wetness and coldness and so forth. Wind, which makes the cold, the wetness really cold. And there are, there are those sensations. And if I can notice those sensations without thinking about them, they may remain unpleasant for me, but they're now not embedded in that story anymore. And also, if I don't project them into the future, but I can stay present with what's actually happening right now, it's not like this drawn-out drama of potential suffering. It's actually just the noticing of this particular unpleasant experiencing. So, that's, that's one step. And then there is an experience I want to uh, relate to you, which is kind of hard to talk about. Uh, so I'm going to try out a metaphor. It's like I feel with Zazen experience under my belt, with a sense of stillness and in not moving. And what Dogen, I think, refers to as the backward step, I can step kind of from the foreground of my experience, which is maybe these sensations, into the background, into, we could say, awareness or the field of mind. And um, the sensations, as they are there from moment to moment, actually become kind of pixelated. I hope you can do something with that image, which really just points to a feeling. It's like this experience that was so solid, that was real, it was cold and wet and uncomfortable, and it was also is very ready to be embedded. It's just this like pixelated uh, flashing of, of sensations. I mean, I'm looking at a screen right now that's pixelated, and I can see your faces, and they are different from, you know, seeing them if in person. But it's a little bit like that. It's, uh, it's seeing into this uh, pixelated nature of all appearance. It's like, well, it's just coming together in a very fleeting way right now, like this, this visual experience, this oral experience, like it's it's coming together in this way. <clears throat> so, um, I see some people nodding, so, you know, you can do something with this uh, description, and maybe some of you can, can't really uh, understand what I'm saying, but it's uh, maybe worthwhile feeling into, you could just ask the question, how substantial is this experiencing that I'm, that I'm having right now? Um, 
And the way I'm presenting this right now is like the momentary quality together with this pixelated insubstantial quality is maybe something that gets us into the territory of what is an experience of emptiness and what Buddhism talks about is empty. I mean, sometimes you read a book about emptiness and somebody, you know, you read a book and somebody discusses emptiness and they make a comparison with like, yeah, each each object is really on a subatomic, an atomic or subatomic level. It's just these like little particles and there's a lot of space in between them. And I'm never quite satisfied with this comparison because when I'm meeting a person like the person I got impatient with today, um, I don't see them as a lot of space with just some subatomic particles. Like that's that's hard to like. That's just a thought. Also, I think you know for this uh, proton let's say, in this subatomic world, another proton might appear quite substantial, you know? Like, if you're at the same level, like the proton has to say, oh, like, you can be broken down into quarks or something. But, you know, on the proton level, these two collide, and they are pretty substantial. <clears throat> so I, I think... Uh, Maybe as an image, it's not bad, but that's why I'm saying pixelated, because I I need to see a certain kind of mind quality present together with the object quality of the object that I'm seeing or hearing or something. That this so-called object, this appearance, actually appears on within the pixelation of the mind. <clears throat> Anyway, this is something you might want to play with. Now, to just do a little bit more exploring, um, I think by habit, most of us, and you can disagree if that's not the case for you, but I'll just speculate. I think by habit for most of us, we live in a world that we see as a constellation of persons and objects and relationships. Like, the world is the sum of all the objects and persons and relationships. And yes, there's change because these objects and persons move and the relationships between them are changeable. But in that view of the world, these objects and persons remain kind of substantial nodes. Like they... Yes, if I think about it, I know that the lamp that I'm looking at here is going to also perish in some way, you know, because the paper is going to fade and 
disintegrate and maybe it will burn in a fire and so I can think about that. But I'm, I just want to explore with you, isn't it the case that somehow I look at the world as this constellation assembly of objects and people and they, their relationships change, but something stays the same about these components. You know, and that's not something I'm thinking about necessarily, but it's something that is built into my view of the world. It's something that I uh, rely on. That certain objects stay in place, like my house will be there, this tree will be there. They're not just going to disappear and be really insubstantial. But something happens when you apply a tune yourself to applying the four marks and sort of slip into a world of momentariness. When I grew up in Germany in the 80s, there were discos, you know. Like now they're dance clubs, but they were disc discos. That's how, that's how we call them, you know. You'd go out dancing, you know, and there are there were strobe lights, you know, strobe lights, right? <clears throat> okay, so everyone, you know, appears like this in the strobe light. <clears throat> but a momentary world is a little bit like that. It's like a world to which you decide that you're going to look at it through the strobe light of your for Mark's mind. And in my experience, it breaks up uh, the substantiality of the, of the constellation world. It turns It turns the uh, it turns this sensorial world into a kind of um, into a into a kind of field experience. Like it's not just objects, but it's like there's a field that comes into. I, it, 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 it is picked up by the movement of my attention in a strobe-like fashion. Now, the, the, the point I think that Buddhism is trying to make through impermanence is also that it, it jeopardizes, calls into question, and... Uh, and ultimately insubstantializes the the notion of self. So if my experiencing is actually this kind of pulsation, strobe light type pulsation of of appearance, it's hard to hold on to the idea of uh, a self. Like this person that I am in a in a core like way. I'm yes, I'm changing on the surface, 
But at the core, I am this substantial thing that is part of the constellation of my world. You know, this moment of impatience that I had, um, there's there's a certain way I can relate to it. Like I have trained myself out of that way of relating to it, but I know that uh, it's right there as a possibility, and I know that many people um, take the opportunity to relate to themselves in a kind of self-blaming way when there is a moment that that actualizes a so-called bad habit. You know? So let's say impatience is one of my bad habits. Then I can now take this moment and I can, as they say, beat up on myself. I can say, oh my God, you know, I, I'm still so impatient and I really shouldn't be. So what am I doing when I do that? I'm relating to myself as this person that has a stable, substantial characteristic of being impatient. And I'm judging that as bad and something that needs to, something that needs work. You know, I need to work on my habit. Now that's that's a certain that's a certain type of self relationship, and it's very common. I mean, I can also beat up on the other person. You know, that's another style. It's a different style. <laughs> it's treating the other person as a substantial person that has characteristics that need to be dealt with and worked on. Okay, well, let's say we're more, you know, we're good Buddhists, we're working on ourselves. Um, but when you allow yourself to really tune into this worldview of momentariness and insubstantiality, like what actually happened? What is actually happening when a moment of impatience materializes or manifests, let's say? Well, as I said, you know, there is this trigger, there is this, like, not understanding, there is the resistance that I have to that, there is the wanting to get past the situation and move on and do something else. But those are very insubstantial momentary appearances. That's a visual cue, that's a uh, familiar, reactive uh, se feeling, sensation, that's uh, a certain conditioning that is um, conditioning me to not wanting that. Hard to tease it all apart, but you can actually get pretty granular in your observation of what is happening in such a moment of impatience. 
or any other moment, right? I'm just giving one example. When that moment is past, how much of it is left over? How much substance is there to your impatience when that moment of impatience is over? Like, maybe you're just moving on and have a, have a glass of water, you know? Like, have a sip of water. Where's the impatience in that next moment? So if we have a little courage, you know, we actually see, wow, this is this is just a moment of impatience. I can just I can just apologize and uh, repair the relationship to the best of my ability and move on. Now, you could just move on and ignore that you have a habit, but it's also useful to just start seeing that the habit is really just a repetition of moments that appear here and there. And the habit, when you take that view, the habit becomes pretty insubstantial because it is just the repetition of a certain moment with a certain quality. And it's, it's momentary and insubstantial quality actually is what makes it workable. Because if I can get into that moment in which such a moment of, in which such a quality of impatience arises, I could start to see how it's possible to do something different. It might not be possible all the time because the conditioning can be pretty strong, but it might be possible. At, at a, at a, in a certain moment, I might be doing something different. I might just tolerate what gives me these uh, unpleasant sensations that I call impatience. And this is also how, so the, the habit is insubstantial, but the cure of the habit, so to speak, or the, the, the alternative habit that I want to build is insubstantial too. It needs a repetition to become more of a conditioning that I'm going to, uh, that I'm, that I find more functional. So if, if we're interested in changing habits, karma, you know, it's, it's all workable because it's momentary and insubstantial. And it needs attention on this, on this micro level of your experiencing to actually be present for what is happening, but also for what an alternative might be. So the, the, with these kinds of practices, uh, the view of a permanent and substantial self gets um, um, yeah what what do I want to say it gets um, 
cracked open. And differentiated into workable moments. My time is up, I see. <laughs> Maybe this is this is enough to say. And um, for now, and I hope you'll stay for the discussion. And uh, I I would be uh, delighted to hear what you're what your experience is and how you relate to this and um, have some exchange.